Welcome to the Kickstart Garage, where we want to inspire and educate the leaders of tomorrow. Join us as we learn from the best in the business. Okay, so welcome back to the Kickstart Garage. I am your host, Gavin Quigley, and today I won't be joined by my co-host, Sam Byrne, but I am delighted to be joined by Terry Gurry. Terry is an Irish solicitor with tons of experience in real estate investing, as well as building businesses in Ireland. So Terry, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Gavin, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's a, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the chat. So, you know, Terry, you've uh, you've had your own solicitor practice for the last ten years now or so, and uh, you've actually started to build quite a strong online presence with your content on, on property investing and employment law. But uh, before we delve into your most recent endeavours, do you want to just give us a little bit of a, a background on yourself? Yeah, I did um, a BCom degree in UCD way back in the 1980s, and um, Started then with my first business, bought a retail convenience store, locked up shop actually in 1986. Um, and I was in retail then and in property development, property investment, uh, building businesses, mainly retail, mainly convenience stores and flipping them, basically driving the turnover up and driving value into the business. And obviously, as a consequence, into the property and flipping them. And that went on then for up to about 2006 or thereabouts. I had various businesses, including convenience stores, pubs, petrol stations, and so on. Then in 2006 or thereabouts, I cashed out and I sold my business here in Enfield. It was a filling station and convenience store, and I got into property development. And I bought a site down the country in Longford, built apartments there, and then the Celtic Tiger uh, crash came and I got wiped out quite frankly so I was in my early 40s had lost everything lost all my capital everything I had touched had done fairly well up to that point but now I have wife four kids and lost everything so I went back to college then um, and studied law in, in an intense sort of a way in Griffith College and uh, passed the exams to get into the Law Society got an apprenticeship with my old solicitor, my own solicitor, and qualified then about 10 years ago or so. And then I started my own practice. So that's how I came to to be in, in the solicitor's practice, in the solicitor's game now. It's been a roundabout sort of a route, but um, here I am, you know. Yeah, that's, that's actually quite interesting because it was something I was going to ask you. I know you said you, you started off studying business and, of course, building and, and selling businesses as well as going into the property development. And this was all before becoming a solicitor. I, I didn't actually realize that. What was the, the thought process like behind that decision? I mean, like a lot of people would go and start studying business. They do quite a, a broad business degree and uh, then not really be sure what kind of avenue to go down. Was it only after the crash? Or? But to be honest, yeah, to be honest with you, I went to boarding school. I went to St. Fianna's College, Mullingar, and back then when you were a boarder you were a boarder so you got home once a month so i missed out on on doing law or getting enough points for law by one point and i had a choice obviously to repeat the leaving but because i was a boarder and couldn't wait to get out of the place um i went ahead and took my first or took the only option i was given that was a commerce degree in ucd but i had an interest in business anyway i had an interest in entrepreneurship and that sort of thing so that was okay, went and did that. But I always had a sort of a hankering at the back of my mind for for law and had a sort of an aptitude for it because I did quite well in the 
the legal aspect of the e-commerce degree, you know. So when my back was to the wall then in 2006 or thereabouts, um, or when the, the wipeout came with the property crash basically in 2008, um, I had to consider what I was going to do. I, I lost everything. I'd lost my capital. I had wife, kids, mortgage, the whole lot. So it was a fairly intense sort of a back to, back to the wall sort of a situation that I found myself in. But that sort of um, desperation, I suppose, if you have the motivation and so on, you can turn it into something positive, you know. So that's that's how that came about, really, you know. And um, we'll touch a little bit on, on the recession, I suppose, and your, your earnings on that a little bit later on. I wanted to jump into real estate investing just to start off. You know, I understand you've actually written a book. It's called Buying a House in Ireland, a step-by-step guide by a builder, a solicitor. And this is a book that it was on my list, like kind of this time last year. I was about to buy it from you um, just before the pandemic hit. But the the whole kind of uncertainty, it, it kind of put my property investing plans on the back burner. But do you want to tell us there, I suppose, like what was the inspiration behind writing that book? Well, just in terms of writing the book, I mean, obviously my own background in, in buying and selling and speculating in various properties over the years uh, in in shops and residential and greenfield sites and redevelopment projects and building on housing estates and so on. All that sort of thing gave me a kind of a unique perspective, uh, along with obviously being a qualified solicitor. So when I was in college and that sort of thing, uh, or in the law society rather, I mean, we'd be discussing various aspects of conveyancing and property and so on. But a lot of my classmates wouldn't have even have bought a house at that stage because a lot of them would, be, would have been young people starting out on their careers and so on. So I kind of just obviously recognized that I had a unique perspective in that I had quite a bit of experience in the game and then I could ally that, um, you know, hard and fast experience with the theoretical knowledge of conveyancing and what's actually involved from legal perspective and from the point of view of planning uh, planning laws, uh, title, conveyancing and all that stuff. So I just thought I had a unique perspective on it. And then I've written a few other books there, which I've published on Amazon, Kindle and so on, uh, one on unemployment law. But I just said, well, the property one would be would be a clear, um, an obvious target or an obvious thing to do, you know. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, you know, being a solicitor now as well, you'd be very aware of, of the legal and technical process that, occurs and what's involved when you're purchasing a property which a lot of people wouldn't have a clue about and from your website i was able to see uh, you do offer a free report which is called i think it's buying and selling a residential property in ireland the, the facts you should know so for some of the, the first-time buyers or potential first-time buyers listening today would you be able to give them a little bit of an insight into that process and just a few of the things that they should definitely have prepared well, what they need to do, I suppose, first is just arrange finance, uh, arrange their finance, and then they need to consider their own particular circumstances, uh, where they work, uh, whether they have a family or not, whether they intend having a family or not, and they need to, to buy, I suppose, a property that suits their particular circumstances best, um, and obviously they need to, um, you know, fit it to their budget. In general terms, I'd suggest that they try and get the worst property in the best area rather than the best property in the worst area simply because the the uh, the truism that property you know is all about location is true it's a big big factor so any individual or any young couple starting out then obviously if it's a second hand house i'd be suggesting to them that they definitely get a structural survey carried out so a structural survey is not to be confused with a valuation report which they'll need for the bank 
it's a survey carried out by an architect or a surveyor who will basically comment upon the structural integrity of the house, any signs of pyrite, any issues with the boundaries, do the boundaries correspond with the land registry folio and so on and so forth. So that's in relation to a second-hand house. But obviously they need to do their uh, homework and uh, ensure that the property is going to be right for them and, you know, it fits their lifestyle and fits where they, they work, they both work and so on. And they obviously need to take into account their own circumstances in terms of uh, career progression and so on and so forth as well, whether they're going to be transferred and that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, and it's it's just such a monumental purchase, I suppose. Like, I mean, people who are buying something online, I think they need to look at a website a few times and then they make a purchase. But when it comes to something as gigantic as actually buying a house, I think people just need to take their time. And, you know, if it takes you six or 12 months to even pick out a property, so be it. Like, it's because it's going to be right. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they need to be patient. And obviously, they need to get, you know, professional advice, be it a solicitor or be it a surveyor, architect or whatever. And some, you know, people obviously starting out and buying your first house, your budget is fairly constrained. But the 250 or 350 or 450 euros that a structural survey is going to cost you is money well spent because if it prevents you from making an investment that's going to be a heartbreak for the rest of or for 10 or 15 years then it's money well spent and if that money is spent and and warns you away from a particular property it might seem like a, a cost but it's not really it's it's something it's a bullet dodged essentially and, and it's money well spent in my view you know mm, yeah for sure and um something that you did touch on earlier was going through the the downturn around kind of the 2006 7 8 period and having experienced that the ups and downs of the real estate market in ireland over the last couple of decades have there been any particular like mistakes or, or learnings that you can remember that made you really change your approach or, or change your strategy for real estate investing? Not really. I suppose I'd be a bit more wary now of the, the potential, I suppose, for a crash and so on. I mean, up to that point, the Irish property market was fairly safe. It was a safe and, and steady bet. And we'd never seen a property crash like the one that came at the end of the Celtic Tiger. What I would be... Um, what I would have learned, though, was that, I mean, a lot of the economists at the time, for example, were telling us about having a soft landing. I mean, there was certain signs that the market was overheating and that the market was too frothy and so on, and that the banks were lashing out too much money too quickly. Uh, and uh, a lot of leading economists were telling us that the market was heading for a soft landing. That was absolute nonsense. So I would be wary, to be quite frank, about the um the forecasts of economists and other so-called experts because most people are very wise in hindsight but at the time it's very hard to get the timing right and very hard to forecast in any market whether it's property or shares with any degree of accuracy that that we might do you know yeah i think people are, are realizing that as well because of how volatile the stock market has been just particularly in the last week or so things aren't looking too great so i think important to kind of look at things a bit more objectively when you're making an investment decision um, on real estate for now i suppose terry when when you're looking at a property to purchase when it is an, an investment property would you be able to give us some of the i suppose like qualitative and quantitative characteristics that you'd look for in a property you mentioned things like location and getting the, the structural survey like in other words what would your overall process look like when you're uh, looking at a, an investment property well, firstly, I mean, I'd be thinking about my market. I mean, who who is my target market for the particular property? For example, 
is it going to be simply a residential letting property? If it is, then to be honest with you, I'd probably be looking at either a two-bed apartment or a three-bed semi in a half-decent location with, with uh, half-decent uh, transport infrastructure and employment, you know. Other than that, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's a relatively straightforward process. What you would be very careful about is, A, ensuring that the property itself is structurally sound, that there's no issues with title or planning or anything of that nature, and B, then, I'd be very careful in terms of vetting the potential tenant. I would be getting, uh, I would be getting and I've learned the hard way, uh, references and so on, and ensuring to take up the references, you know. Um, that's assuming it's a residential property. If it's a commercial property, that's a different situation entirely. I mean, you could buy, for example, like I did way back in you know the early or late eighties, a resident or a commercial property or a mixed property, which you know, commercial, residential, and one that's perhaps closed up or gone out of business. Previous owner had um, had failed essentially in his business, and you'd be looking at that with an entirely different viewpoint and from the perspective of perhaps getting a business into it, driving it up, getting it to its max or close to its max, and then selling it on. And obviously, um, you're selling a business and you're selling a property as well. And the value of the property is probably enhanced as well by the fact that there is an existing uh, ongoing business in it, as opposed to being just a lock, locked up uh, retail unit, you know. So it would depend then, obviously, on what age I'd be at in, what, in terms of my career and so on, whether I would be prepared to get in and roll up the sleeves and build a business myself with a view to flipping the whole lot, you know. So, I mean, if I was looking at a shop unit now or any sort of a unit with perhaps some residential aspect to it overhead, I mean, if I was 23, 24, 25 again, I'd be looking at perhaps putting in some sort of a coffee shop, maybe a sandwich bar or something of that nature, uh, working hard, driving up the turnover, making a nice, attractive proposition for a would-be investor or would-be purchaser down the road and turning it over then after two or three years, reinvesting the profits and, and going again, that sort of thing. But obviously that type of thing, A, requires a bit of imagination and B, requires energy. And, you know, when you get into your 50s, etc., and your circumstances have changed and your family are nearly reared, you're less likely to be taking on that sort of uh, work and that sort of hassle. But if I was younger again and, and uh, really hungry and motivated and so on and only had limited capital available, that's the type of thing I'd be doing. I'd be trying to uh, build some sort of a business in a, in a shop unit with perhaps a residential aspect to it and then flipping the whole lot after maybe one to three years, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so in, in your experience on the residential side of things with the, like two-bed apartments and three-bed semis, would you manage that property yourself or would you use a, an agency like you're saying as you get older would you get a, a management company to look after the property major yeah i do i have a number of units myself left at the moment actually down in longford there and i have an agent he's a local man on the job and quite frankly i mean i live say 50 miles away from it and you know i forever i'm getting uh, messages from my man down there uh, about a broken washing machine or a leak in the shower or a radiator not working and so on. And the last bloody thing I want to be doing on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning is heading down there, trying to figure out why the bloody washing machine is not working or whatever. So from from that perspective, I have a guy there managing the stuff for me. He collects the rent and the whole lot, and uh, that's it, hands off from my perspective. There was a time when I might go and do it myself, but the bottom line is uh, I wouldn't have the skills or the time 
to deal with uh, your ordinary repairs. Now, perhaps you may have listeners who are perfectly good with their hands and very handy around the house and really good at the DIY and so on. Fair play to them. But from my perspective, that's not my my bag. And um, from my perspective, it's certainly better to, to manage or get someone to manage it for me, you know? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's just the self-awareness to know that and to know your own skills and whether or not it's going to be helpful for you, I suppose. It's, it's important. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big key. You always should recognize your own strengths and your own limitations. And there is certain stuff that you really shouldn't take on, you know what I mean? And I've learned that over the years. And if you're really good at one thing, even if it's something that's very, very limited, you can still make a good living out of it or a good make a good business out of it, uh, even though it may look to the ordinary you know observer to be something that's very very limited but if you're actually the best in your field no matter what it is whether it's digging holes or you know building buildings or whatever you'll do well but you do need to be mindful of the boundaries of your ability you know yeah yeah it's like the the economic principle of comparative advantage where countries should just trade in what they're most efficient in sense for a lot of things but um you know investing in property today it, it has changed a lot you know it's, it's very difficult i suppose for people specifically in dublin to to make a purchase especially when they're on their own compared to, to back in the days is, is what i'm kind of referencing there especially if, if you don't have the cash at your disposal the the lending restrictions are very very tight at the moment especially with um with the whole pandemic going on you know it's I think it's like three times your annual salary and if you're working in in sales like myself where usually they would be kind of generous to the commission side of things that they're, they're not really as generous as they were this time last year so you know just on that financial side of things and, and saving up the deposit what advice would you offer to someone who, who is looking to start on the, the property ladder well to look it's a double-edged sword because you know back in the day when, when i was starting out the financial restrictions or the lending restrictions weren't quite as onerous as they are now but to be honest with you that might be a good thing as well it is a double-edged sword but obviously it will prevent you from going you know balls to wall and borrowing 100 percent whatever as i would have done back in the day because obviously um you you can grow very very quickly and you can take on a lot of debt very quickly but the corollary is when the market uh, crashes and the tide goes out then you're left with your trousers down essentially so the restrictions, I know they're very difficult for young people trying to get started on the property ladder and so on. And I know they may appear to be uh, sort of the nanny state intervention into the market, etc., etc. But quite frankly, I've seen both sides of the coin. I've seen a fairly liberal uh, bubble type atmosphere uh, where money and, and capital was very, very easy to obtain. And now I see the more restrictive situation, especially when I see loan offers coming in here to the office on behalf of clients and so on i see how restrictive they can be and i can see the requirements that the banks are looking for in terms of confirmation uh, and confidence about ongoing earnings and so on i've seen both sides of it and to be honest with you it is a double-edged sword Uh, it mightn't be all a bad thing but obviously if you're starting out unlike myself you're starting out you're trying to get a house you might be thinking jesus this is appalling how am i ever going to afford a house and quite frankly i mean looking at the prices in dublin at the moment and so on and indeed in the last few years it is hard to see how any how any young person starting out could uh buy a house in dublin you know but look at it's um the restrictions were brought in for a particular reason and you know when when the property crash came uh, it certainly wiped out a lot of people, you know. So I suppose that's part of the central bank um, 
idea and part of the government idea that you know people will be sort of safe from themselves to a certain extent i mean just to go back to the celtic tiger crash i mean back then 10 years ago or whenever it was two of the wealthiest men in ireland were sean quinn and uh, dr ajf o'reilly and both of them went bankrupt now both of them went bankrupt because of basically the property uh well quinn in relation to shares but um aj o'reilly in relation to property and the bottom line is when the when the tide goes out in a particular market uh everybody's going to be in difficulty so i suppose that's part of the reason for the uh, the, the conservatism in, in the guidelines and, and the borrowing uh, or lending restrictions and so on you know mm, yeah yeah um i want to just i suppose move on to share investing as well it's it's fairly popular these days you have a lot of people in a kind of you know early 20s into it getting really eager to jump into the stock market so i want to ask you a bit about that um because i know recently i believe you launched an investing course centering around share investing specifically um, and i wanted to know what your investment strategy was and, and how you've tailored that strategy over the years given the ups and downs and everything and were there any individuals of influence that, that would have helped guide you yeah my strategy is firstly i'm investing for the medium to long term so i'm not looking to make money overnight i'm not looking to make money in one month three months or six months i'm looking at a time frame of probably three years plus and that has served me very well so in the medium to long term uh that's the sort of time frame i'm looking at because i know from the data if you go back to you know the great wall street crash way back um, you'll see that the stock exchange, the share prices, etc., a basket of shares would increase generally by about 10% or thereabouts uh, every year. So I'm buying and investing for the medium uh, to, to long term, so three years plus. The type of investments I'd be looking at then would be um, the companies need to be doing stuff or selling things or selling services that I understand. So I need to understand the business. And that means, uh, I mean, I have shares there, for example, in Twitter, Snapchat, Amazon, um, Google, uh, Ryanair, Smurfits, CRH. These are companies that are doing things that I actually understand and I would be using their products on a daily basis. So it's important from my perspective that I'm investing in a company who is engaged in some activity that uh, I recognize and understand. That's why I'd steer, steer clear of the likes of cryptocurrency i'm not saying there's anything wrong with cryptocurrency or anything i, I do recognize the benefits of uh, blockchain technology and so on in terms of contracts and so on down the line and it may well be a game changer even in my industry and it's something i'd be looking at but cryptocurrency i'm steering clear of for the moment in terms of people that i might um, model my philosophy on the likes of benjamin graham who wrote the book the intelligent investor the likes of warren buffett the likes of Peter Lynch, who wrote One Up on Wall Street uh, and Beating the Street, those guys uh, would be considered, I think, to be value investors. So they're looking at companies with a view to getting value. They're looking at companies with a view to buying shares that are producing uh, or companies that are producing earnings and the share price has lagged behind the earnings. And basically, they're looking at good value and they're looking at things that they understand. That'll be my sort of philosophy, and it served me fairly well over the last number of years, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely, I would say it's just a smart strategy in, in sticking to what you understand. The same way you should stick to what you're good at in, in business, stick to what you understand. And that way, you're, kinda, you're not going to make any irrational decisions that way as well. Um, 
I'd be I'd be fairly similar. You know, I'm I'm quite green when it comes to investing, but I I would invest largely in in ETFs, things that are just you know tracking the uh, the large funds like i mean like the s&p 500 and things like that and it's- yeah i mean that's a good way to go and i mean if you buy a basket of shares a broad basket of shares in any of the major indices and you hold them you'll, you'll do okay you know yeah yeah i wanted to ask as well i suppose just while we're going into share investing there's a lot of people that are eager to get started with investing and, and they want to start their journey now and largely off the back of the chaos, as I'm sure you are sounding, the likes of GameStop and I think people are calling them like meme stocks. They're speculative stocks that people are just jumping on with, with no real reason. So just because of, of that and because of how volatile the stock market can be, I'd love to know how much shares are as part of like your overall investment portfolio. Do you know like your your asset allocation, or could you give us? Well, at the moment, yeah, at the moment, most of my investments would be in shares, uh, and that's just you know sort of uh, reflects, I suppose, my life cycle. Insofar as I've been in property most of my life, and now uh, having the shares or having a few bob invested in shares, I've uh, no borrowings and I've access to cash when needed. So if I ever need a few bob fairly quickly, obviously, cashing in shares is very very easy. I have a very broad basket of two different portfolios, one with Davy Select and one with the, the, the Gyro platform. So if I ever need cash or if I needed cash, for example, to pay a tax bill or any sort of emergency, I can put my hands on a few bob uh, relatively easy because obviously shares are very liquid, whereas the property, uh, you're looking at a much slower uh, disposal and, and uh, having your cash tied up and you're obviously taking on uh, debt most of the time with property as well so that would be my situation at the moment I, um, I do have actually the property still in Longford of eight apartments down there but um, they'll be heading for the heading for the auction block fairly soon you know yeah yeah and, and just on that I mean I, I'd love to understand I'm, I'm getting into investing now like I'm saying I'm looking to purchase my first property this year probably be towards the end of it but what i'm trying to do is put together my own sort of strategy my own thesis around the the portfolio as a whole looking at things objectively i wanted to get i suppose your insight how would you juxtapose real estate investing versus stock market investing would you think is that one is is better than the other or you know in terms of expected returns what's your experience been like yeah, no, I've, I've done a study on that and I've actually made a video on it there recently. And in order to make the video, and it's on my YouTube channel, which provides the better return over time, property or shares. And it's very, very difficult to quantify exactly. Both do well from, from time to time, etc. And it really depends on how long you're going to hold the shares, how long you're going to hold the property and so on, which markets and so forth. But in terms of um, investing in one or the other, the, your age and your where you are in your career development and so on is a big, big factor because obviously the younger you are, I mean, the easier it is to borrow money. I mean, clearly when you get to 50 plus, uh, getting money, borrowing money, getting a mortgage is going to be much more difficult because let's face it, uh, banks don't want to lend to you if you're, say, 60 years of age or thereabouts because they're going to be concerned about getting their money back. Whereas when you're young, you might be inclined to take on debt and take on borrowing and work away and you're working through your career and so on. So if I was you or if I was a youngish person, to be honest with you, my focus would be on getting a property uh, because of the benefits of leverage and the benefits of borrowing money 
and the benefits of uh, being able to leverage a small amount, say five grand, 10 grand, 15 grand, 20 grand, or whatever, into a much larger sum, into a much larger investment. Because obviously, even if you're only allowed to borrow, uh, you know, 80% or 85% or 90% or whatever, if your investment goes up, then obviously you're going to get a far greater return on your initial seed capital, as it were. Uh, as opposed to shares where you really wouldn't be borrowing to buy shares you have to have the cash unless you're like Sean Quinn and you end up getting uh, you know CFDs contracts for difference or whatever and um, so if I was you or if I was youngish or for less than 30 or thereabouts I'd certainly be focusing quite frankly on property at the moment you know that would be my view and, and the reason would be because I can leverage the few bob that I would have uh, in other words I can borrow whereas I'm not going to be borrowing to buy shares that'll be uh, that wouldn't be sensible I don't think you know yeah it's a good way of looking at, at it um, I, I do have to ask you there you, you touched on on the likes of, of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies there earlier are you just staying away from that do you have any sort of exposure to the likes of bitcoin or anything like that or you, you're... I don't no, no, I don't, and I'm not going to, quite frankly. Um, I do have an eye on the whole blockchain technology and so on, but that's more from the point of view of uh, the impact that it might have in the legal industry, for example, in relation to contracts and in relation to property conveyancing and so on and so forth. There seems to be great opportunities and, and great potential uh, with, with using blockchain technology for that and the ability to perhaps even set the banks aside and so on in terms of transferring money and, and um, registering properties and so on. There's huge opportunities there. So I'd be keeping an eye on that from, from uh, you know, just the perspective of carrying out a little bit of research and, and uh, being aware of what's going on. But in terms of cryptocurrency, no. I mean, if I was going to buy cryptocurrency, uh, you know, I might, you know, buy a, get download the Paddy Power app, quite frankly, and have a punt on a Saturday and have more fun, you know, that'd be my view because as I say, um, it may well turn out great, but like, I'm really, I'm really not sure. I'm going back to my philosophy of buying shares that I know what's going on or buying companies. I know what they're doing. I mean, I know Ryanair, for example, sell flights and I know Ryanair are going to be flooded with people looking to get out of the United Kingdom there from June or July onwards and go to Spain and Greece and so on, you know, so I know what Ryanair is doing, but I don't know what's going on with cryptocurrency. So for me, I, I would steer clear of it, you know. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, if you're going to invest in cryptocurrency, you, you need to appreciate that it is completely speculative. You know, there's a lot, there's limited information about it. And it's only been around, what, like less than 10 years. There's a giant drawdown in only a few years ago as well. So. When you do understand it's the same as kind of having a Paddy Power account, then it's okay, I suppose, as long as you're not thrown. Absolutely, but you, you might have a bit more fun with the Paddy Power account, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a bit more opportunity. You can actually watch a football match as well if you're betting on that. Yeah, or watch the racing on a Saturday there or whatever from Leperstown or, you know. But anyway, like whatever floats your boat. And obviously, like Elon Musk there the other day or last week, uh, you know, announced that he invested a boatload of money in, in cryptocurrency. And then yesterday or the day before, he, he was kind of warning people against it. So you had this sort of seesaw effect where it was an absolute lemming-like rush into cryptocurrency once uh, Elon Musk was seen to put his money into it. And then people are pulling back now and wondering. So like that's all very much like an, an oil rush sort of a situation or the Yukon, you know, uh, the gold rush back in the day. Yeah. It scares me to see how much influence he has on the market. Even like the likes of Tesla, Tesla has has plummeted, I suppose, since he announced that he invested in in Bitcoin, and now Bitcoin's starting to draw down as well. So, 
Um, let's move on a little bit, I suppose, into you know the likes of business, entrepreneurship. Um, I know that you mentioned that. I think you're, you said you were 23 when, when you started and sold your first business. Since that time, obviously, you've gone on to buy and sell many more businesses. You mentioned the likes of kind of retail, pubs, and then property developments, petrol stations. Um, I wanted to know, though, you know, like throughout this journey, are there any specific principles that you've developed from, from starting and running these businesses? Uh, not really. I mean, obviously, you know, in terms of building businesses and, and, and flipping them and selling them on and so on, you have to add value or enhance the value of the business or advanced enhance the value of the property and, and sell it on. And that, you know, that was hard work, but I mean, it, it worked very, very well. But uh, if you stick to something that you know, and if you are very aware of your ability and, and uh, your, your area of competence, then you'll do, you'll do okay. I have a very good friend who has a very, very good business. And I met him first, uh, you know, 40 years ago when he was 15 or 16 and he was in the back of a little shop in Finglas with a counter. And now he's got a very, very successful business. But since then, when he was 15 or 16, having left school early up to today, and he's a very wealthy man, he has always been trading. In other words, he's always been able to just trade, uh, you know, tins of beans, uh, jellies, uh, sweets, stuff from Musgraves. Uh, supplying uh, shops and so on and so forth. But he's always just been a trader and and he has been very, very good at that though. So like, you know, his area of competence is fairly narrow, but he's been so good at it and doing it for so long that he's actually made a very, very successful business out of it. So from anybody, you know, from the point of view of trying to build a business or build a career or whatever, if you're aware of your, your area of competence and if you're very good at one thing, then one thing is, is enough if it's a really good, if you're a one trick pony, it's fine if it's a really good trick, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I think a lot of people are really intimidated by the, you know, possibility or looking at starting a business themselves and they think, oh, well, I'm good at this, but I've no idea how to do like the accounting side of things or I have no idea about the legal side of things. But you can focus on what you're good at, like you, you've mentioned, and just you can outsource a lot of it when it comes to business and just focus on the one thing that you know that you can do well. I think a lot of people think that they have to do everything. But I wanted to ask you as well, Terry, you know, you're wearing a lot of hats and, and fair play to you. You know, I will go into the content creation that you've been doing over the last while, which I think is fantastic. I think it's fair to say that a lot of what you do is it's kind of like business consultancy, if, if I'm not mistaken. You know, it won't be for a range of different circumstances with people, you know, with small businesses and then offering them legal advice as well. Of course, you're a solicitor. What are some of the most common problems that, that these small Irish businesses would come to you with and, and how would you go about helping them out? Now, if not, the problems would be, to be honest with you, would be employment related. Uh, a lot of employers make, uh, make mistakes in relation to um, employment law and employees and so on and get into difficulty there get into very avoidable difficulties that's going to cost them a lot of money if it ends up with an unfair dismissal uh, claim or a discrimination claim or whatever uh, at the WRC other issues I see people coming to me with a lease uh, they've leased this premises they've leased a yard they've leased a shop they've leased uh, some sort of an industrial unit but they didn't go to a solicitor in the first instance or uh, they went about it in a very sort of a rudimentary way and took on a business and end up with this lease. And the next thing is there's some really onerous condition in it or they've poured a whole lot of money into a particular lease 
into a shop unit perhaps or some sort of a unit and then discover that at the outset they actually signed the deed of renunciation in other words they renounced their right to get a new lease at the end of the existing one and the existing one has now come to an end and the landlord wants them out so i've seen a lot of people who look at a business or look at a lease look at a property or premises and, and really don't um go to a solicitor and get a bit of expertise get a bit of advice and, and be sure what they're signing up for you know and i've seen people taking over the likes of as i say coffee shops and so on i saw one guy like one day uh, leasing a premises in dublin and all he was doing was was um he wanted to park uh, i think school buses on it or something which was fine like for a few weeks until the local authority came out and told him there was no planning commission for this and you know he's coming to me then after signing a lease uh, saying what am i going to do and the bottom line is that the uh, lawful activity or use to which he could put that area was very very limited and he simply didn't have planning permission and basically a dublin corporation or dublin city council or whoever it was was essentially closing them down and here he, his business was going uh, was going to be closed down simply because he didn't go and get a bit of due diligence done at the outset and ensure that planning was in place for the purpose for which he intended you know so people like go in starry-eyed into these situations and really don't uh, spend a few bob either getting a structural survey done or maybe getting a solicitor to have a look at the lease and checking the terms and conditions and so on so these are the sort of things that i'd see and as i say the employment uh issues then that arise as well i mean some employers do some crazy stuff you know yeah it's it's like anything in life where you know failing to prepare is preparing to fail and just doing that little bit of due diligence asking around before you go and you press the button on these things it just can save you a ton of stress in the long absolutely just in terms of asking beforehand a guy left a comment on my youtube channel there last week he was after buying a property at auction this goes back to our property discussion but he bought a property at auction uh, and then when he went to complete the sale he, he discovered that there was actually a tenant in the property and he went to his solicitor and said like i want vacant possession and his solicitor rightly said to him you went to this auction and you bought this property and uh, there was a sitting tenant and that was evident from the documents of title that were provided that was evident from the contract and yet the guy had gone ahead uh, put his line his, his neck on the block uh, bought the property paid the deposit and now wanted vacant possession it wasn't going to happen because the receiver would have told him in advance that there is a tenant and we don't know much about him and it's up to yourself to deal with him in due course you know so again that's a situation where somebody went off half cock without uh, getting a little bit of advice in advance and if you go to an auction and this is one piece of advice i'd give to anybody listening to your podcast make sure you do your due diligence before the auction not afterwards because afterwards uh, it's too yeah late. that's that's really good advice because i think i'm not sure if you're aware of the company i think it's called bid x1 there absolutely this was a bid x1 auction once yeah I, I thought it might and i've i've reviewed i've reviewed plenty of properties for people on bid x1 and bid x1 are a perfectly good company and so on uh, but all they do is they make uh, the market as it were and they provide uh, the opportunity for receivers for example who have repossessed properties to sell those properties and the receivers will instruct solicitors and the solicitors will put the contracts and all the title documents up on the bid x1 site for review and that's great and i come along then and i review them and i advise my client 
this place doesn't have vacant possession or there is a tenant in it and they don't know what the story is with them, etc., etc. And that's fine, but provided you know up front. But some people go and they look at the thing online and they see a house going for 50 or 60 grand or something to think it's great value. And the next thing is they have a tenant in it who is going nowhere, you know? Yeah, and I think it, like that, Bitex One is a good website, good business and all. And I was looking at when, like back last year when I was going to purchase the property, I was looking fairly seriously at, at a, kind of bidding on a few properties there. Um, but I think it's just, it it makes it, it looks so easy. And it, I was thinking, this is grand, you know, I can easily start bidding. You know, I think you just have to put like a, a few grand in that they hold on to to join the, the auction and then you're good to go. And you kind of mistake the forest for the trees. You think, oh, grand, like I'm, I know everything and I'm going to, I'll get the property sorted and I'll figure out the rest later. But it is important to just get a little bit of consultancy before you go and jump in. Absolutely. And you must ensure that you have finance in place as well, you know. And to be honest with you, uh, the bank doesn't want to know about, uh, probably won't want to know about that type of a property because uh, it's just too risky for them. So unless you're a cash buyer, like, um, you could be in difficulty. Now, I did see one fella there, a client of mine, and he bought a property not too far from here. And I just checked afterwards, and the property looked very cheap. And when I checked, he was the only bidder, and he, he did get a very cheap property. There's no doubt about it. He got great value and more luck to him, but he was a cash buyer, and he knew what he was doing beforehand. We had a look at the uh, title documents and the contracts and so on beforehand, and he knew what he was getting. And as I say, he was the only bidder. So he was very lucky, and the receiver would have been selling, and the receiver was under pressure from the bank. Look at, sell the bloody thing and so on, which was great. But you do need to do the bit of research beforehand, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I wanted to discuss a little bit about like negotiation. I, I recently read a book, well, it was a while back, but it's called Getting to Yes, How to Negotiate if your life depended on it i'm not sure if you're, you've read it but um it, it's a fairly unique unique book um, and it revolves around negotiation you know, it's a fundamental skill in life i think no matter what kind of walk of life you're in you're gonna have to negotiate whether you're a business owner or you know even just kind of negotiating contracts and deals and stuff with you know different uh, subscriptions that you've got every day you're dealing with negotiation either implicitly or explicitly Absolutely, yeah yeah I'd say it's a it's a fair assumption to make as a solicitor you're doing a lot of negotiating you know probably more than others so for the audience listening terry what would your you know the strategy or what would your general principles be for negotiation and you know how could people listening and improve their negotiation tactics a couple of things that i'd say number one is the attitude you need to adopt i think and it's worked for me is sort of friendly incompetence in other words you are a nice sort of an individual and you are perhaps not entirely competent. In other words, you're enthusiastic, you like the property, et cetera, et cetera. So the other side then doesn't have their hackles up that you're coming in and you know everything and you're really running the rule over whatever is being offered, whether it's a car or whether it's a house or whether it's a shop or anything else. So if you're friendly and appear to be kind of incompetent, that's fine. That's a good attitude. Secondly, when you're making a bid, if you're coming along saying, this is my final bid, never have your final bid around figure. So if the property is for sale for, let's just say 200 grand, uh, and you're going in there and you're saying, you know, after a good few bids and there's two in and thrown, okay, my final bid is 190 grand. If you have a round figure like that, psychologically, the estate agent or whoever's selling it believes that uh, it's too much of a coincidence that it's a round figure that's his last bid. 
um, and we'll think there's a few more bob in you. Whereas if you go along and say, look, my family and friends have given me a few bob and they've, they've come together to give me a dig out with this and the very best I can do with my final bid, I'm walking away, is 189,700. That's a far more credible bid as a last bid, simply because it's an uneven um, figure and it's more likely to be accepted as your best and final bid and, you know, your balls to the wall sort of a bid. Um, one final thing, yeah, the one final thing when you do any negotiation, entry into any negotiation, is you must be prepared to walk away. So you can you can care for the thing, all right, but you do need to be prepared to walk away. Uh, and the other side simply cannot believe if you uh, that you've fallen in love with their car or their property or their shop or whatever, because if they believe that, they will believe that they have you on the hook. And no matter what you say or do, you're going nowhere. Whereas if you come along and you're kind of indifferent, you are prepared to walk away, you care, yes, you want a property, yes, but not at any price, you will walk away, well, then you're in a stronger position. So there are the three things I would suggest. Um, friendly incompetence in, as a general attitude, be prepared to walk away. And your final bid, your balls to the wall bid, must be or should be an uneven, odd sort of a number. It's far more credible, you know. Mm, yeah yeah well terry you know i, I want to just continue on entrepreneurship and i will get into the content creation now in a second can it, just purely because i mean entrepreneurship is picking up quite a lot i would say in ireland lately especially with the likes of the collison brothers i think they're from limerick they started stripe there which has just skyrocketed the last few years you've got shane kern who has launched a company called Evervault. He's doing huge things over in the States. And there's a real proof of concept for young entrepreneurs now. I want, I want to ask, I suppose, just given your experience starting businesses in Ireland, I wanted to know if, if you think entrepreneurship was and is encouraged as much as it, it should be in the, the education system. No, it's probably not, um, Gavin. And, and like we would certainly in, in secondary school there would have been no talk at all about entrepreneurship or starting your own business or anything of that nature the encouragement would always have been to get a fairly sound secure job and so on and so forth now obviously when i went to ucd and did a commerce degree uh, in that particular environment the likes of john teeling and so on who founded teeling whiskey he was one of my lecturers um those guys would have been good in terms of encouraging you know entrepreneurship and that sort of thing but by and large, I mean, in this country, especially if you look at some of the politicians in the Dáil uh, from a particular political hue, then, you know, making money or making profit is seems to be a dirty word a lot of the time. And uh, entrepreneurship seems to be looked down upon or as something, uh, you know, unclean and so on, which is unfortunate because there's a different attitude in, you know, the likes of the United States where somebody you know trying something and failing and trying again is par for the course whereas here there's something unclean about you if a you're trying to make a few bob uh, and b you go tits up quite frankly and, and fail you know um and there would be a fair fairly significant uh, cohort of people especially politicians uh, in the doll and elsewhere who would have this attitude of looking down their nose at making a profit and somehow, you know, equated to some like, you know, drug dealing or something, which is absolute nonsense. Let's face it, you know, it's very, very strange. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. I think in Ireland, people just don't like talking about money, which I mean, I understand that you shouldn't be like boasting about it and like, 
you know, like, I suppose, make others feel worse because they don't earn as much as you. But I think the whole concept of, like, personal finances and people understanding money and being able to make it work for them is so valuable. But you just, you don't hear a word of it in, in education. And it kind of transcends across the business as well. And the capitalism. Um, but I wanted to ask, just, just given the climate at the moment and the emergence of these, these lockdowns, restrictions in the last year, you know, I work in business development. I'm speaking to, to Irish business owners every day. And there's a real doom and gloom around the place. You know, businesses are really struggling to stay afloat, most specifically now with lockdown being extended again until April 5th, I think it is. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like for right now, but just in general, what do you think are the most effective ways to scale a, a business in a, a tough climate? I suppose, I mean, it's to keep your costs to a minimum and, and to work bloody hard and to be very aware of what you're good at and, and focus on that, you know. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a huge range of complexity in any business uh, or potential complexity in businesses, depending on what you're in, involved in. But, I mean, people can overcomplicate things and, you know, business can be relatively simple and relatively straightforward like my friend who's essentially a trader and has been a trader for 40 years basically buying and stuff and selling stuff for a little bit more and importing and, and uh, su supplying shops here and so on and so forth but any business as I say can be as simple or as complex as you want it clearly in order to scale your business you need to be committed to it you need to work hard you need to keep your cost to a minimum and not get carried away. And I suppose stick to the knitting, stick to what you know, you know. That might be the most effective way. As I said, there's probably other things there, speculative things that you might take, um, you might have a punt at or whatever, but you want to be careful that you don't uh, end up taking chances and making risky bets that essentially put your existing business at work or at risk rather. So you do need to be careful and, and um Go in with your eyes wide open, do do your analysis. And, and it's always useful to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. In other words, if this works, then I'm going to get, you know, X amount of return. Whereas if this doesn't work, then um, I won't be too badly off. And, and just to go back to my, my first um, business back in 1986, I mean, that was a shop unit that was closed up and there was a two bed apartment overhead. And essentially, I was looking at a business there after doing a bit of research. I was looking at starting a business where if the business worked really well, I figured we'd, we'd double our money in it. And if the business didn't work really well, if it really didn't go anywhere and it just plodded along and really didn't take off, it was a convenience store we were putting into it. But the bottom line is we were going to get our money back because the value of the property alone was going to be returned to us and and we certainly weren't going to diminish the value of it and that's how it worked out so this was a business then or a development or an investment rather where if we did well we would double our money which did happen but if we didn't do well we would have got our money back so that's not a bad situation to be in in other words it wasn't really risky at all insofar as it would have been a really bad day if we simply couldn't pay the the loan because the loan was relatively small and the property value was relatively small because the property had the previous guy unfortunately had gone out of business you know so you can assess situations and you can see businesses where uh it's it's a heads you win and, and tails you get your money back situation you know yeah yeah and i think that's just the best advice i suppose having 
a contingency plan or understanding, like you mentioned, that the plan A and plan B side of things, it means you're a lot more prepared. And that goes for, I think, business and investing and, you know, a lot of aspects of life. Um, we're, we're coming towards the hour mark. So let's just talk a little bit about content creation. I wanted to congratulate you, first of all, Terry. I know you recently hit, uh, I think it was 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. For anyone who's uh, who's tried, I, I'm doing a little bit of content on YouTube. Just started there recently, uh, and it's a difficult platform. So to hit 10k is, is really fantastic. It's a great milestone, and I know personally just from following the channel for the last year or so that it is uh, very much deserved. So fair play. I wanted to ask Terry because I think it's important for people to know if, if there are you know any sort of business people out there thinking about you know content creation. How much does this content that you produce play a role in generating leads for the business? It's huge. I mean, I wouldn't have a business, to be honest with you, without content creation. And I mean, to put it at its simplest, I start with a simple uh, idea or blog post. And I write a blog post and publish it on one of my websites. I have a number of websites. That's how it starts. Then I make a video about that very topic. So I make a video down and stick it on YouTube. Then I stick that video on Facebook. Then I stick it on Instagram and I stick it on LinkedIn. So that one idea or one blog topic, that one blog post that I've written uh, ends up being five, six, seven, eight different pieces of content. And then obviously YouTube, I've built up a good subscriber base there uh, and I have a good library of, of videos there. But I mean, I started with my first video, I think in 2011, about 10 years ago. Uh, it's been a long journey, but I've got a bit of momentum now, you know. But it all starts with a, with, with a blog post, with an idea, with an observation, with a piece of useful information to my potential audience. So it has to be useful. It has to be of benefit, you know. Uh, and after that, then, obviously, if you're producing content on a regular basis and it's relatively easy, once you get into a sort of a system or a rhythm, people see you as a trusted authority or as an expert in your area and they naturally come to you then with their issues, et cetera, et cetera. You know? So it's a win-win and without it, quite frankly, I wouldn't have a business at all. Uh, no two ways about that. I know that for a fact. Yeah, yeah. I like value is what you're kind of touching on there, making sure that it is actually you've given them something worth reading, worth watching, worth listening. I mean, once you start with value and you build on you have a structure, like you say, for, for being regular and consistent with it, you, know, you can do some, some really good growth. And you've touched on momentum there. I think that's quite important once you do get into the rhythm of it. Um, so when it comes to content creation, you know, particularly having recently hit that 10K mark on, on YouTube, do you have a definition for success when it comes to content creation, like a, a particular target you're aiming for? Or are you just mainly focused? My definition of success, uh, Gavin, would be to uh, write a new blog post or make a new video uh, every week. So I, rather than looking at an outcome, will attend to the process. In other words, my commitment is every Saturday morning or Sunday morning or both mornings, I will write a blog post. And I know then a few days later or a week later or a fortnight later, that blog post will become a video and so on. But all I need to do is rather than focus on the outcome, uh, I attend to the process. So my job and you know i always hold myself to account if i can is to write a blog post on a saturday morning yeah very good and it just becomes a habit i suppose more than anything it becomes a habit absolutely it's like exercising i mean i would go for a run every evening it only takes half an hour and i feel guilty if i don't do it but likewise on a saturday or sunday morning if i haven't written a blog post 
or done something useful in terms of either a piece of content, a video or a blog post, I feel guilty. So I hold myself to that. I don't need to keep doing it, but I keep doing it. Do you know what I mean? Because that's my commitment to myself and to my business. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure, Terry, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to have you on. I, I'm sure I could ask you a few more questions, but we are coming up to the hour mark. I don't want to keep it this morning. But um, before we uh, before we finish up, I just want to give you the opportunity, you know, do you want to tell us, tell our audience where they can go and find a little bit more about you? Well, you can check out my website, businessandlegal.ie, or else just Google my name, Terry Gorry, Terry Gorry Solicitors, G-O-R-R-Y. You'll find a good bit of stuff there in Google search, etc. Or you could check out my YouTube channel. Again, just look for Terry Gorry and you'll find plenty of um, videos of mine. You'll find my channel and... and um, just as I said, just do a search for Terry Gorry and you come across me, I think. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll be sure to link those as well. We're going to put out some social content so people will be able to. Yeah, you. good stuff. Well, we'll leave it there, folks. And thanks again, Terry. I really appreciate your time this morning. And thanks, Gavin. Thanks for having me on. Everyone listening. Uh, it's our pleasure. Thanks again for everyone listening. And I will catch you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Kickstart Garage. This show is for entertainment purposes only. This show is for entertainment purposes only. No one on the show has provided investment advice. The information provided by the Kickstart Garage podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The opinions and views expressed on the Kickstart Garage podcast or those of the participants do not reflect those of the host or sponsors. The Kickstart Garage, its producers, sponsors, hosts and guests shall not be liable for losses resulting from the investment decisions based upon the opinions or viewpoints presented on the Kickstart Garage.